We are in a sermon series, the second greatest love story ever told, uh, the story that Jesus tells the parable of the father and the two sons. It's the second greatest story because obviously the greatest story is the story of God's love for us, but this story in so many ways is a mirror reflection of that and it causes us, us to go much deeper in our understanding. We have the Rembrandt uh, print here and one in the uh, lobby area back there uh, in the photo booth, but also uh, how many of you observant people noticed that it's also on the back of our bulletin? And uh, it was amazing to me uh, the depth and detail that was picked up uh, by the printer, uh, the amazing uh, painting by Rembrandt who lived in the 1600s, a Dutch painter. And uh, so you may want that picture open uh, as I refer to the, uh, the, the parable, the story this morning, and you may also be able, if you're, depending on where you're sitting, uh, I checked this out from the balcony, and it's actually an amazing view of the, of the print from the balcony as well. So I want us to remember that we're in a series, and I know the weather was a little uh, contentious the first two Sundays of the year uh, with threat of ice and snow, and so if you have not had a chance to listen to the first two messages, I would encourage you to go online and do so uh, because there's a continuity and a flow to this, and next week we'll conclude it with a, a look at the Father particularly. Uh, but uh, if you have time, uh, make the time and uh, go online and, and listen. It won't take you very long and it will help you uh, sort of stitch all this together in a way that might be a, more of a blessing and, and more of an education to each of us. Okay. In just a moment, I'm going to read from Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. I'd like for us to bow for prayer together as we pause in God's presence. We thank you, Father in heaven, for loving kindness and for all that you teach us through scripture. We pray that today you would open our hearts to new truth and help us to also remember that Jesus told stories not so much to educate as to call to our minds those things we already know, but need to bring back into focus. We pray today on behalf of our entire congregation, those who are grieving, those who are ill, those who are struggling uh, with life's major decisions. We pray for our church and all of our partners around the globe and here at home. And bless First Baptist Church as we live out the good news of sharing all of the good news with all the people. And help us individually and as a church to hear your call this morning, whatever that might be, the call of Jesus on our lives. We pray today for our nation, for the leaders of our country, our state, and our local governments. We pray your loving care and protection upon those serving in the armed forces and for their family members in times of separation. And we pray for peace in this world and justice in this world because we know how much you love the world. So now take our thoughts, take our prayers, take our hopes and dreams, gather us up, and we wait at the foot of the cross. We wait in the name of the crucified, risen Christ. We thank you for the bread of life, Holy Scripture. May the words of my mouth 
the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, if you're able, would you stand and uh, I'll read aloud once again this amazing parable of the father and the two sons. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property and dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. And I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, it's one of the oldest sources of family tension uh, that is absolutely universal. Uh, Statements like this. Mom and dad always liked you better. Statements like, they let you get by with murder. And statements like, they practiced on me, and then they let you get by with all kinds of things. That struggle with real and perceived favoritism 
and sibling rivalry. Uh, For as long as my father lived, and as far back as I can remember, every Christmas my dad would say to all of us children, now we spent the same amount of money on all of you. Maybe you didn't get the same number of packages, and maybe they weren't as big, but to the penny we spent money the same on all of you. We said, Dad, it's okay, and then we kind of looked over the shoulder and said, I wasn't really worried, Dad, until you brought it up. But, uh, but this whole thing of the tension in the family between siblings, and, and, and it's so interesting that this is not just a theme that Jesus created out of thin air. Any good Jew who was listening to Jesus tell this story for the first time immediately perked up ears when Jesus' story started, a father had two sons. Because if you were a good Jew who knew your Hebrew scripture, your mind would start racing and you'd start thinking, Cain and Abel, the first brothers who got in the first fight, and Cain killed his brother Abel. Or you'd start thinking about the twins, Jacob and Esau, even fighting in their mother's womb and all their lives, vying for parental approval and blessing. Or how about Joseph and his many-colored coat and the jealousy of his brothers toward him and the fact that Joseph didn't always help the situation very well by the way he bragged about all of the advantages and how his brothers threw him in a pit, left him to die. All these stories plus many more rolling around in the mind when somebody heard Jesus say, a father had two sons. They sat up on the edge of their seat and said, oh boy, this is going to be good. Here it comes. And so this story of the two sons. Now in some ways, the two sons have a lot in common. They're both incredibly selfish. They both, in a way love the Father for the sake of what the Father can do for them. They don't necessarily love the Father for the sake of a relationship with the Father. The younger one says, Dad, I just need your money. I don't need you. But even the older one says, you know, I've served you. There ought to be something in it for me. Never never mind that he's supposed to be in a relationship of love and mutual giving with his Father. Just like you and I start loving God for the prizes. We start loving God for the blessings. And when the blessings don't come, we're not so sure. Well, there is a case to be made that maybe the older son has a little bit of, a, of an argument for the, uh, for the inconsistency. We're going to deal with that more next week when we think about the father's love and the justice and injustice of, of the ways of God. But for now, let's just focus on the reality that one of the things that makes the older son stand out as a cautionary tale for us is that Jesus, remember, started telling this story because back in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, it was the religious leaders of his time who were criticizing him for spending time with people who were in a far country spiritually, for people who were very, very lost and very, very out and on the margins. And he wanted us to see ourselves in the older brother. The older brother is a reminder of all the ways that we attempt to save ourselves. 
works righteousness. See, not everybody who's away from God commits public acts of rebellion, despicable deeds that, makes every, that, uh, that make everybody blush. Sometimes our rebellion from God can be very subtle and it can be full of pride. I'll do this myself. I will do good for God and God will reward me. A sort of transactional a relationship with God. It's, it's the people, those of us who say, you know, I've worked hard, God. I've kept all the rules, God, so there must be something in this for me. And God, I'll do good for you, you do good for me. As if we can save ourselves. As if, as if we can bribe God into loving us, as if we have to. But that works righteousness is more subtle sometimes than, that, than, than we know because it's not that outward act of rebellion. And while the older son kind of works righteousness, maybe externally all good. I'm here, I'm working, I'm a, I'm a stand-up citizen, I'm respected in the community, the outward veneer is all good, even though that all may be good. On the inside, our hearts are as dark as those who go into a far country. And here's the sad thing. Works righteousness has a way of quickly shifting into self-righteousness. The older son comes in from work, sees the party, gets angry, His dad comes out to him, and the older son basically says, I should have a choice who gets back in the family. Setting himself up as judge. See, that's self-righteousness. We never do that, do we? That smug self-righteousness that says, God, you need to consult me before you let some people repent or join church. Or as Tim Keller says in his book about this older brother, the older brother says, you know, Dad, you need to check with me. I've got rights. I've got rights. And that's that older brother mentality. Well, I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about this older brother because I had the advantage of knowing this sermon series was coming for quite a while and I just started uh, thinking about all the, all the things that I don't like about myself and all the ways that I see myself and the older brother. And so I'm just going to preach to myself and let you listen in. Is that okay? I want to show you a few characteristics of older brother behavior. Now, you don't have to quickly write. These are going to be up a while. Uh, if you like to take notes, they're going to be posted on the web. I make them available to you anytime. And it's not rocket science, but it's just an honest reflection on older brother behavior. And you see, if anybody sitting near you this morning has any of these. Older brother behavior is judgmental of others, yet touchy when criticized. Can dish it out, but can't take it. Older brother behavior is judgmental. Uh, Isn't it interesting how the older brother found it very easy to confess the younger brother's sins? 
You know, this son of yours was in a far country spending money with prostitutes. Whoa, wait a minute, who told you that? And here's a clue. When the scripture says we're supposed to confess our sins, that means we're supposed to confess our own, not other people's. Just a little hint there. Gossip, backbiting, telling things that don't need to be told, all that judgmental, and yet so touchy if anybody says anything negative about us. Older brother behaviors, obsessed with outward appearances. It's all about veneer. It's all about looking good. Doesn't matter if the inside is rotten because older brothers are obsessed with, hey, I work hard. I'm respected in the community. Uh, I, I make things go around here. I'm really looked up to. Older brother behavior is scrupulous with lots of rules. And yet, those excessive rules betray the fact that older brothers are never quite sure of God's love, always feeling like it's got to be earned. Maybe I haven't done enough. Maybe I need to set up some more rules so I can feel better about myself. Related to that, older brother behavior is guilt-ridden, driven by shoulds and oughts. How, How much of your behavior, how much of my behavior, driven by shoulds and oughts? Older brother behavior is a people pleaser, trying always to make other people happy so we can feel good about ourselves. Older brothers are busy and hardworking, doing a lot of good, can't argue with that, fine citizens, doing lots of good in the church, but just perhaps for the wrong reasons. Older brothers are insecure, have low self-esteem, and therefore overcompensate by bragging and needing to constantly reassure self and others, but a lot of insecurity a lot of low self-esteem in older brother behavior. Here's the next slide. Older brother behavior feels smugly superior. Notice what the older brother said to his father. He said, this son of yours, I refuse to call him brother because I just wouldn't go near him. He's your son, not my brother. Smug superiority. Now, that smug superiority may be racial, It may be ethnic. It may be religious that we feel like we belong to the right church and nobody else does. Or that we've got the right doctrine. Or that we behave more morally than others. It could be smug about education, smug about station in life or job. But it's that older brother behavior that's always looking down on others because that's the only time you can feel good about yourself. Older brother behavior is competitive to the max. Older brother behavior has to win all the time, and older brothers always have to get the last word. Oh, there's a whole sermon series there, I know. Older brothers need to be in control of others, and they call that love. Controlling people think, I know what's best for you, I love you, so I'm going to make it happen. Controlling behavior. As... as a Hannah beautifully pointed out to the children, older older brother behavior is about jealousy of others' success and others' blessings. Instead of counting all the blessings that he had, the older brother could only see what he did not have. Older brothers are unforgiving, grudge-holding, always keeping score. You did that for him. You didn't do that for me. I told you I was sorry. You didn't say that's okay. And back and forth and back and forth. And I want to camp on this last one for just a few moments. Older brother behavior exhibits anger 
and joylessness. Older brothers are just angry all the time. I mean, the resentment of the older brother just oozes off of the page of Scripture. Scriptures, Jesus said he was angry. I just want to say to some people sometimes, what are you so angry about? I want to say to this nation of ours, what are you so angry about? Why don't you just get in touch with your anger? Just ask yourself, why are you so angry? And joyless. He says, you know, I work like a slave for years and you never even cook a goat for me. Oh, you work like a slave? It probably is slavery if there's no joy in it. Isn't it interesting how when we serve God and serve others, we want it both ways. We want to serve God, but we want to reserve the right to complain and bellyache about it. We want to do good deeds in the community, but we want to be able to tell people how hard we've worked and let somebody know how inconvenienced we've been by this sacrificial service. Joyless. Work like slave. If if your heart's not in it and if you're not in love with the Father, it probably is drudgery and slavery. Now let's take this parable a step further. If by chance the church is full of older brothers who are angry, joyless, controlling all those things I just listed. If hypothetically the church is full of older brothers, does it surprise anyone that younger brothers aren't flocking to the church? It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to think about. I want to go down to the painting and talk to you just a little bit more about some of the details that I've learned just... uh, from studying what others have said about it, and I'm sorry if I'm in the way of people sitting over here, but um, the father, the younger son, repenting, crying in rags. Most believe that the person on the right in robes is the older son, and if, if it's easier for you to look at the bulletin picture, because you can't see what I'm talking about, the older son while the father's arms and hands are blessing and touching, the older son is standing back rather stiffly. There are others in the picture. What are they thinking? Are they on the younger son's side or the older son's side? But here's something I'd never thought about before. In most pieces of art, the primary character is in the middle of the picture. And everything else secondary is around that person. But in this picture, the father and the younger son are over to the side. The older son is in the far right side. 
There's light on the Father and on the Son, the way Rembrandt did the light. There's light on the elder son's face. But in between, there's a gap of darkness. Signifying the distance that the older son is from the father's heart. That though he's never left home, he's far away from the father. And there's this gulf, this dark gulf between. And I also humorously think the older son is saying, I'm not getting close to him, I might catch something. Yeah. And then Henry Nouwen does this beautiful thing in that book that I've mentioned is in our library, The Return of the Prodigal Son, where he talks about, the whole book's about the parable and this painting. He talks about how the father, the way Rembrandt did the father's slumped shoulders, the father's shoulders make an arc or a canopy of protection. There's this hood, this canopy of loving kindness and forgiveness. And the younger son is under the canopy of the father's love and grace. And the older son is not under that canopy. He's standing there trying to make it on his own outside the canopy. One of the scary things about the parables is the way that Jesus will take stories and then at the last flip them to where we're like, oh, you're talking about me. You're not talking about them, you're talking about me. So what is Jesus saying in this parable about those of us who believe we're on the inside and we have it all together? See, the father said to the son, uh, to, uh, about the younger son, he was dead and now is alive. He was lost and is found. Maybe what he was also saying to the older son was, you were alive and now you're dead. You were found and now you're lost. They flipped roles. So what I would like for us to do this morning is to zero in, each of us individually, on one thing we need to do. One thing you need to do to move under that canopy of God's love and grace and forgiveness. If you've never received Christ, whether you've been in a far country doing blatant sins or you've been building self-salvation and proudly trying to build your own superhighway to heaven, to repent and to open your heart and to come into that canopy of love and grace. But if you're already a follower of Jesus, what's the one thing you can do to maybe give up anger and resentment, to maybe let go of a grudge, to maybe learn to live in God's grace? Whatever it is, that one thing you can do to move under the canopy of God's care the canopy of his joy and his forgiveness. Let's bow our heads together. For just a few moments, I'm going to invite you to use this silence to work on what I just assigned you.
What's that one thing? What's that one thing you need to do? There would be a beginning. Something that you can accomplish to more fully experience God's joy and forgiveness and grace. If there's a commitment you're making to Christ that you want to share with one of us, I'll be here at the front. You may also visit with one of the pastors after the service. If there's a church membership decision, we'd be happy to receive you during this response time. For many of you, for many of us, right where we are, there's business we can do with the Lord. God bless us. Open our hearts. Teach us. Grow us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.